0: Good morning everyone, and uh, thank you for being here and thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak to you and I trust as we've been said, we really would take a step forward and onwards in this journey that God has got us all on, and that it would actually really be a significant morning for you as you receive what I believe God wants to deposit in each of our hearts and so it is a good morning and i 'd love for you to enjoy it with me so i 'm going to um, you're asking some questions as well, and you are happy to participate, okay, and respond to the questions. They're not rhetorical to so be open out there or left. You can answer them. Okay, so when we look at, uh, we, in the series, we were looking at the different pictures of the church, or we can say metaphors used for the church. And so I just wanted to explain that a little bit, because there are various ones. We've seen last week it was a family, today speaking about the army, next week it's a body, and there are more to come. And unless you actually understand how metaphors work, you'll all be a little bit schizophrenic or suddenly not knowing which one are we actually, you know? Today I'm this or tomorrow I'm the other. Well, it's actually the same as what Jesus did when he used parables. And when Jesus walked the earth, he used parables to explain principles or new things that he was introducing to this new group of people, the people of God, for them to help them understand it. And what he would do is he would take something that is an example of everyday life that everyone could relate to. And then he would explain on the back of that. So first looking at the natural thing and then looking at how it applies in your spiritual life. And so the metaphors of the church, or these pictures, do the same thing. Now, what you would also know is that there's not only one metaphor used for a specific principle. There's often quite a collection of them. When Jesus, for instance, was speaking about the kingdom of God... He would say various things about it. He would say that it is a field where there's a treasure and it's so precious that you sell everything to go and buy the field. Then he says it is like a banquet that somebody throws and he invites everybody to come in. Then he says it is a pool of great price. The kingdom is like a seed, a smaller seed, a mustard seed. So it's all these different pictures that, that um, explain different aspects of the same thing. So you are a family. We said last week you are an army. You are a body. You are all these things put together. They get expressions in different realms often. So metaphors that are there shouldn't be overemphasized, as I said, and stretched beyond what they should or are intended for, because if you do that, you can run into error. They also are there to understand, some of them get application in the physical realm. The understanding of a family is very much in the physical, the natural thing, or the body. You, you pick up those things from then looking at the natural just like that and applying it. But then there are some that has to be applied in the spiritual realm. So there's a spiritual realm that's very real. I'm going to speak about that, and they apply in that realm. And so it's important to understand that. Otherwise, you're going to be confused and not actually know what it's all about. Okay, so when we speak about the church as an army, I want us to first just get your thoughts going. So just looking at the natural first, then we apply it to the spiritual. So just an army. When I talk to you about an army, what are the thoughts that come to your mind? Anybody, just tell me. What thoughts? Okay, so I not made a mark, yes. Okay, so there's war. Other things? Okay, uniforms. Say again? Lots of people. Okay, yeah? Protection, okay, thoughts? Weapons. Weapons. Unity is good. Training. Great. Discipline, there you go. You must have been... In the army. <laughs> okay, so so I've put together a little slide presentation that Penaso um, you can just run through, just to stimulate your thinking to get it going. Okay, there's serious weapons. You think of when we're in the army, when you think of the thing of an army. Keep going. Okay, so there's some pictures of military guys, uh, cannons. You think of war. You can keep going, Panasso. Um, there's discipline, there's order, the structure, there's whole platoons, masses of people. Serious fighting that you engage in. In the midst of a fight, can't run away. You've got to be there. Training. Rigorous training. Carry on. Okay, there's a command. There's a, a chain of command that you got to understand. There can be people that have become rebels. Army. There's a, there's a thought of rebels too there. Look at those bombs. I mean, that is seriously meant to harm and to injure and to destroy. So you think of all these things. You think of the intensity of the battle especially if you look a little bit past in the history, severity of a man on man, exactly. There's casualties, wars associated with casualties. Carry on. All the different armor, obviously, comes to mind. Throughout the ages, different ones that has been used and do all these things. Okay, you can just keep rolling through them. You see, it's air, it's land, it's, it's a variety of things, thoughts that come to mind, intense battle. They're peacekeeping forces, somebody was saying. Okay, so that is a soldier, properly dressed, and I'd like for us to each leave this place properly coated or clothed in, our, in, in the armor today, but with an understanding, the intellectual understanding of it is what is important because we'll see as the preach goes along. Okay, so, so that is in the natural. So now, if I was to say that the church is an army, Okay, where does this thought actually come from? Is there actually a biblical basis for it? Or do we just all sort of naturally progress into it? Because in Sunday school, one of the songs we are taught is, I'm a soldier in the Lord's Army, yes, sir. That thing, or maybe if you're a bit old, he's saying, Onward Christian Soldiers, so you know that's, there's this thing. So is it more than just songs? Okay, can anybody give me any examples, scriptures that tell us that we're an army? The scriptural references, or stories, or whatever. Come, they're obvious. They're plenty. Okay, so let us help you. Maybe you think there are so many. As a matter of fact, you'll see as I run through it now, I think actually that the army metaphor is the predominant, most emphasized metaphor of the church throughout Scripture. That's my opinion. Uh, so, but you'll see, right from the start, we all know that The Old Testament stories are there to teach us things that we are to apply in our lives now. And the life of Israel is something of the life of a believer, a Christian. So the process that they went through was from delivering out of Egypt, with a mighty act of God, serious battle involved, there was wars. You see it all throughout. Wars to possess the promised land. Wars to expand. Wars to get God's kingdom or the Israelites into their possession. So we see that throughout the Old Testament. We see it even in the prophets. The prophets were, were to prophesy things over the people of God. And we all know the prophetic word of, that came to Ezekiel in the Valley of the Dry Bones. And it says, you know, prophesy, will these bones come together? Can be life into them, prophesy life unto them. And then what is the final phrase? So they arise an exceedingly great army. army. Not congregation. Not choir. Not a sports team. Army. So even prophetically, we see that we are an army. We're called to be an army. So it is there. We know that when Joshua went into the promise Land, starting to enter, he met the angel of the Lord, stood in front of him and said, Who are you for me, against me, all that? And he says, I have come as a commander of the armies of the Lord. So you want to be on that side? That's what it's about. So we see we're an army. We see throughout the New Testament, over and over and over, the language used in the New Testament when it describes these things, the armor of God, Ephesians 6, that's a war, it's military language. We see Paul exhorting Timothy exhorting Timothy, and say to him that, you know, endure hardship as a soldier. We see that uh, our weapons of our warfare, it speaks about all the weapons of righteousness. The warfare is in Second um, Corinthians 10. Romans, even the language. Romans 13:12. It says, "Clothe yourself not with a lab coat of light or sports, you know, sports jersey of light, but with the armor of light." It says that we put on in, in 2 Corinthians 6 or 7. It says um, you wear the weapons of righteousness. You know, it could have said instruments of righteousness if we were all a band. It could have said. A number of different things but it's not it's the weapons of righteousness so the whole language of the new testament that is used is that of military language so now my question to you is why what is the significance of this picture that god wants us all to get of us being an army why is it so important why is it in my estimation the predominant picture that is in the church it does not get application everywhere i'm going to explain now but it is the one that is strongest that comes through. We have an enemy. Yes, we've got an enemy. And how are you going to defeat the enemy? By being like an army. That's the thing. Okay, so, but before I expand on that, it's often a good principle to look at answering a question by looking at what it is not first. So let's look at what are the pictures or what are the aspects of the church where the army metaphor is not very helpful and should not be the predominant metaphor that you use to understand that aspect of the church. Okay, the first one I think of is the fact that when we think of interpersonal relationships, the army metaphor has limited application. It's good. We look out for your buddy. It's that kind of thing. But the interpersonal relationships in the army can be horrid if you don't make you know if there's something that you fail on a course you just get kicked off during training you you, you don't qualify we don't do that as a church it is, it is not the case the injured person in the height of the battle they're taken worth. but during training you, you just lose it you know so that's it's not the case it is not commander to officer interpose. i mean to um sir you know the soldier the interpersonal relationships, the predominant metaphor, is that of the family. We're a loving, caring family that bring all of you, you added into the family. God places us in families, not in armies, when a, a lonely person out there. So that's not the metaphor to be used there. If you look at the leadership structure within the church, it is, again, not ranked or commissioned and uncommissioned officers and you know, soldiers. It is actually that of a shepherd and sheep. We are under shepherds, under God. And relationship is with the flock. The shepherd is useless if he does not look after the flock. An army sits often the highest-ranked officer, sits somewhere way back and just gives commands. The shepherd walks in front, leads. So it is not the predominant let- metaphor for leadership structure. When you look at how God relates to us, he's not a general and we're a an early soldier. He is a father. A loving, covenantal, keeping father that loves his children. So you've got to understand where they apply, otherwise, you can get it wrong. When you look at the value of each individual that each individual has, the value, the predominant metaphor for the value of each member is the body. We are a body where every member has got equal importance and value. It says, even the, the least or the most obscure member gets protected and gets highest. You know, it's like, that is the thing. That's the metaphor that then applies. And so we can look through all of them. So you see already there's many more, but I'm strapped for time. So, but there, so you get it. So you've got to see that. Now, where is the one? What aspect applies for the church as an army? Where does the aspect of the church apply for an army? And he was said, because we've got an enemy. Okay. So this is where I put it. I said, the church as an army is a metaphor that describes the posture of God's representatives here on earth, this side of eternity. There's no armies in heaven in this way. After the great victory, it's not. It's this side of eternity. And it is there for us to fulfill our assignment. We have to understand it. Because in the fulfillment of our assignment that each and every one of us is given, you've got to understand the army metaphor for you to be effective. So I believe that it is critically important for us to understand the battle, the severity of the battle, that it is a battle, and that unless you actually take on the posture, live like, act like heck, and understand the thing of the army, you're going to be ineffective in the commission that God has given you. Now, we all know what the great commission is. or most of us will know. Matthew 28, verse 18, starts. It says, all authority has been given to me. Now, therefore, go... And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in their Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you to do. So there's a number of things in there and I'm just gonna break down. The first is we are all commissioned to evangelize. Okay. But to be an effective evangelist, you've got to understand the army metaphor. Because Colossians 1, 13, 14 tells us that when somebody gets born again, you get there is empires that are clashing. Because they get transferred from the kingdom of darkness or the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the sunny Loves. And for two kingdoms, to one to overthrow another, there is a serious battle that happens. I don't know how many of you have seen these um, series on the rise of an empire or a kingdom. There's a great one that we watched before we went to Turkey, Ottoman Empire. That is ferocious. It went on for, gener- for ages, over like 20 or something years, different things that it went on with skirmishes things that needed a whole lot of strategy and a lot of casualties for the one empire to overthrow the other. And with that thing, they always started to say, for an empire to rise, another has to fall. And so that is what happens for each person to be born again. There's an empire that has to be overthrown. There's a fight that is required so for the advancement of God's kingdom in every sphere of life, that's what people are called to do. We've got to, the world has got to be infiltrated with the gospel and with the kingdom of God. And for that to be done, there are principalities and powers that are ruling in those places that has to be overthrown. So it's a war. Matthew 11:12, Jesus says "Is that from the days of John the Baptist till now, the kingdom of heaven is forcefully advancing. And what? Forceful men oppose it. So there is a serious war on for the advance of God's kingdom. Discipling of nations, like what they said, that that means overthrowing of powers. Oh, I'm going that again. The ministry of reconciliation, Paul says that has been given to him and it's been given to each of us in Second Corinthians 5. Says, and to reconcile people back to God, there are ways of thinking that is controlled by authorities in, this, in the heavenlies that needs to be overthrown. There is a myriad of things that needs to happen and it will take a fight. So in the advancement of God's kingdom, in and through your life, you need to understand this metaphor because that's where it applies. Furthermore, I believe that the understanding of, of this metaphor helps us to understand authority within the life of the church or within God's people. And the authority structure is not, like I said, command is like the down, but the principle of authority. You know that Jesus said he commanded he the Roman official as having great faith, because what did the guy say when he, when he asked him to come and heal his servant? He said, you don't even have to come there. You just need to speak the word because I understand authority. I'm under authority, therefore I have authority. It is critical, important. That is what Jesus said. This man has got great faith because he understands where authority comes from. And so, ma'am or sir, or young person, whoever you are, if your life is in chaos, or if something is just not going well, and it keeps on not going well. If there, as you can see that your family has been ravaged by the devil. I think if you make a close examination, there's a very good chance that you do not understand authority structure, and you are not under authority, or you do not have authority because you're not under authority. Unless you give yourself, Nick's preach of two or so weeks ago, of being in the center of what God is doing, the center of his people, that's where your authority comes from. So if you're not fully submitted to the church, if you're not in a local church, giving yourself to it for people that are online or even listening to this, the devil laughs at your prayers, scoffs at them. When you try and exercise authority because you have no authority unless you're under authority, that's what the Bible teaches. Or you've got very little, maybe. But you have much authority when you're under authority. In corporate prayer, critical place and in private prayer, where understanding of this metaphor is so good. In Acts, there's this Greek word called homothumidon. I don't know if I pronounced correctly, but it's made up of two words, which means to rush along in unison. It's often translated, it's ten times, actually we see it in, in a book of Acts, translated as in, accord, uh, in one accord, or of one spirit and one mind, or together. But the picture that comes along with that word, and it's used twice, in in Acts 2 and in Acts 4, in connection with prayer. And the picture that it conveys is that when we are together in unity in prayer, we are like an effective army that actually rushes along in unity and has great success advancing God's kingdom. So the picture that it brings is to rush along in unison. But you understand it when you understand that platoon marching in step, all those guys approaching, knowing the commanding officer, and actually executing those commands. Okay, so I've said it a number of times already, but I think I need to just stress this point: that there is an unseen realm, and unless we understand the unseen realm and actually emphatically believe in it, you are going to try and apply this principle in the wrong ways, place, this metaphor wrong, and you will not understand it. So I'm just going to quickly explain about the unseen realm. Okay, because of our westernized thinking. We are very scientific, predominantly, in our way of thinking. And, and in that, because most of us are part of it, we actually, without even knowing it, we think more scientifically than spiritually. And when we are confronted with situations, we want to always treat them first and foremost in the natural. Just think of it yourself. When you encounter a problem, what is your first response? You look at, you think of, who do I know that can fix this problem? Or what resources do I have? Or what should I do? And how can I fix it? We are all Mr. Fix-It, so we just want to fix it in the moment. We want to just address it. Sometimes we want to just go head-on. When your child is rebellious or something, you just want to hit it head-on with discipline or whatever the case is. That is not what it should, this response should be if we understand the unseen realm. We as, as Bible-believing Christians should emphatically unequivocally believe in the existence of an unseen realm and that it influences everything that happens in the physical realm because that's what the Bible teaches. Behind everything that we are confronted with, there is a spiritual force. And we've got to step back in that moment and ask God to open our eyes, give us wisdom to see what the, the thing is and address it in the authority that God gives us. So we will be much more successful in it. So there's an unseen realm that we do not recognize and acknowledge. If you are true yourself, just test yourself. Is that your first response? It's, many times it's not. We've got to train ourselves for that to be our first response. So the next slide is X, uh, should be Colossians 1. Finger. So why do I say this, that, there is a, that we should believe in the existence of the unseen realm? Colossians 1 is a beautiful description of Jesus. From verse 15 it says that he is... The image of who? Not just God or the invisible God. The so first we know. Right here now, God is present, but we don't see Him. And we don't see Him because we don't have the right equipment. Nothing in the natural. He's invisible. So there's an invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by Him all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth visible and invisible. Sometimes we want to read in and say things on earth visible, things on heaven invisible. That's not right. You see the orders even changed around. That's not what it means. It means it's a visible and invisible realm on earth as well as in heaven. And invisible does not mean that my natural eyes cannot see it because I need greater magnification or help, like bacteria that can be seen with electron microscopes or satellites by, you know, things by Hubble, Hubble telescope or something. It's not that what it means? It is invisible. You cannot see it, but yet it is there. So you remember the story in, in 2 Second Kings six, where is it six? I think the yes six. The story of Elisha. Elisha is surrounded by enemy armies, and his servants gets all panicky. And Elisha prays, and he asks God to do what? To open Elisha's eyes to see the armies of God, and he sees them as chariots of fire in greater number than the enemy. So what that servant experienced at that moment was not a vision. It is not some prophetic thing that he saw or, uh, uh, you know, like a dream or something like that. He actually was able to see that which is unseen. Spiritual eyes were open. So it was real, it was present, but he just could not see it. That's the unseen realm. So for us right here now, We are angels. There are angels in this room that you can't see. There are demons around. Hopefully they're kept outside. But they are here. They are present. And they'll hop back on your shoulder when you leave if they're not in here. They are there. They are present. And we need to recognize it. Not to be scared, as you will see later, but so that you know what the fight is that we engage them. Okay. So the present reality of the unseen realm is very important. So, now if we look at the picture of the, of, us, uh, of the war that we're in, or just the act of the war, you can go to the next one. Uh, other way. Okay, so one Coloss- oh, Colossians again, Colossians 1, verse 13 and 14. I referred to it already before, but it says, He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, that dominion of darkness, or it could be translated, domain of darkness. Like the ESV does, does, is the same word, domain, that is used for authority when it says that all authority in Acts 28, I mean, in Matthew 28, verse 18, where Jesus says, All authority, he says, All domain, all dominion has been given to me. And the actual word is exousia. And that word, exousia, I'll explain later what it means. It's important. So we'll get there. But you see that. And this verse is actually. Um, paralleled with Exodus 6, verse 6, where it speaks about Israel was under the power or authority or the yoke of Egypt, and it took a mighty act of God to deliver them. That's what it says. And so when it is linked with this, it tells us that when we do ask or pray for a person to come to salvation, it needs a mighty act of God, and we've got to contend for that. We have been called to contend for that in the spiritual realm. In John, the Gospel of John, Jesus three times refers to Satan as the prince of this world. In John 12, 14, 30, and sixteen eleven. 11, if you want to. Look. And the word that he used is Archon. And Archon is a political word, Greek, but a political word that is used to describe the highest Roman official over a region. So what Jesus is saying is, he says, that's Satan is the highest ranking, he is the most powerful, most influential creature on earth, in the world, and in the universe, second only to the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So he's not to be messed with. You've got to know whose authority you stand when you come up against him. Now Ephesians 2, which Tula actually read, verses 1 to 3, I think it might also be one A slide. The the phrase is that we lived all this world, as tools have read, lived once before, lived according to the prince of the power of the air. That's how the New King James puts it for ESV. So what Paul is saying here is he's making it clear that every single person that's ever lived are under the power, under the authority, under the dominion, under the exousia of Satan prior to coming under the authority of Christ. So each one of us was there. And each person that we're trying to convert is there at the present. Now this exousia, exousia means the spiritual power to enforce compliance. It's an incredible statement. So what Jesus is saying is that Satan has got the spiritual power to enforce compliance in every single believer, or I mean non-believer, That is out there. So the whole world, other than the Christians, are serving the purposes of the devil. He's got the ability to enforce compliance to his will in every single individual. That's what he says. See why it's a fight. Why it's a war. Why we need to understand the metaphor of the army. Because what is the devil's will? John 10 verse 9 comes only to steal, looting, state capture, corruption, everything. Steal, kill, abortion, wars, kill, and destroy relationships, institutions, marriages. That's what the devil does, and that's what he wants to do. And every single individual is forced to comply to his will outside of those who belong to Christ. You see the importance of the church in the world and the importance of each of us to understand in the church the authority that we have and what we stand in and how to exercise it. Great. C.S. Lewis said that there is no neutral ground in all the universe. universe. Every single or square inch is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. So nothing comes easy, (laughs) basically. Ephesians 6. Okay. Probably the first passage of Scripture that jumped to mind. When I asked about the army. So the armor of the Lord. Ephesians 6, verse 10. It says should go up there if you have it. Uh, it says, Finally, if you don't just follow in your Bibles, finally, be strong in who? In the Lord. And in his mighty power. Okay, I'm gonna get back to this segment. Put on the full armor of God. Why? So that you can. Not engage the fight, stand. Okay, so you might think I'm contradicting myself, but it will come together. You'll take your stand against who? The devil's schemes for our struggle. Now, that word struggle, sometimes translated as wrestle, is the term palais. And palais is the term that is used for the Greco-Roman wrestling. Not WWF, that's a big showbiz. This is serious wrestling. Wrestling blood-curdling, blood-bath of wrestling till the last man standing with no rules. Jesus is saying, or Paul is explaining here, that the wrestle that we are engaging in for the advance of God's kingdom is a bloody affair. It's a serious affair. He uses the strongest image that they can capture at the time, and they all knew it. What it meant. And why? Because it is not against flesh and blood. So it's not in the natural realm. That's basically what flesh and blood stands for. It's in the spiritual realm which you've got to engage us. It's against the rulers, the authorities, powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. Verse 13, therefore, put on the full armor of God. Okay, so you could say, therefore, be a soldier fully dressed and trained in the army of God, basically. You can. Okay, so now, for us to advance God's kingdom, we, we, we have to know that it will take a mighty act of God that we are to contend for. That is what I was saying. But how do we contend for that? It is in prayer and in lifestyle. What do I mean by in lifestyle? In lifestyle, you need to be able to take your stand on the principles of the word. And the principles that are there, the value system of God that he's taught us, the ways of God through the Sermon on the Mount and throughout Scripture, he said, take our stand on the commands of God that is to be upheld. We are not worship what We do. Do not give up territory on things like abortions or sex or gender issues or uh, anything, normal discipline, children, the, the way where children should be brought up in a home and all those kind of things, natural principles. We've got to know our science take our stands. And what I mean by that, by saying as a soldier, well-trained soldiers, when you think of the training of soldiers, what predominantly, maybe, Mark, <laughs> you would know why. Why is it so rigorous? Why is it so intense? You know, Mark? They don't quit, but also so that it would be so ingrained in you that in the heat of the fight, you don't need to think. You're not going to argue the thing of order of command or chain of command. You're just going to obey in that moment because your life is at risk and the life of your buddies is at risk and this whole um, mission is at risk if you're going to start wrestling or fighting or those things. If it is not so just drilled into you that you simply do it and it is like a natural response is to do what you've been trained to do. Now that's what we should be like as Christians. We should have the Word of God so part of us, the value so ingrained in us that that moment that the confrontation comes, that the testimony comes, I mean, um, temptation comes, that you are confronted with a situation where it is about the kingdom of God against the kingdom of light, our darkness, that you would not quibble, you would not shrink back, you would just simply take your stand as a first response. Our first response should be that which is instructed and informed by God's word. As a soldier in God's army, well-trained and equipped, to do that, dressed like that guy, ready for battle. And in prayer, prayer we're not not trying to command. and shout. I'll get back later. It is the aspect of prayer is to understand the authority that you have and the posture that you take under Christ, and you simply speak it and exercise it through a knowing. It's not about how loud you can shout and how many words you can rumble off. It is about knowing the authority that you carry, knowing who your commanding officer is, and having your lifestyle to back up the authority in which you stand. It is not on ourselves. We, we never have things because we are so good and all that. God has done it for us. But we, we cannot, on the one side, say we that, and on the other side, live like we, we do not have that same principles applied in our life. So those are the things that gives you authority and gives you power to exercise that authority. That's what it should be like. So, I'm just going to read this portion it says i say again that in the context of the church fulfilling its assignment to advance god's kingdom evangelize the word re- reconcile people to god we are not just a family we are not just a temple or a fertile field or a beautiful spotless bride or a wealthy i mean a, a healthy functioning body we are also an army and for us to be effective We need to know it. We need to act like one. We need to live like one. And we need to engage the fight like an army. Got it? Great. Now, I cannot leave you here. I've got to take this a little bit further, because if I do, I think we will all just be stirred up in our charismatic, Pentecostal, militant way and start commanding the devil and trying to um, even demand compliance from God. That is not the thing. So I've got to remind you, of the first line in Ephesians 6, verse 10. It says, Therefore, or well finally, brothers, be strong in the Lord, it's not in yourself, and in his mighty power. We have got absolutely no authority, no power in and of ourselves to overthrow the enemy empire or to execute this commission that God has given us to do successfully. And I remind you that Jesus said, when he sent out his uh, um, people, or maybe just go one step back, throughout the Bible, I was looking at it, there's so many times that it says the battle is the Lord's. There's a couple of verses that directly say it, like that, like 2 Chronicles 20, verse 15 even. But actually, I found the one reference of a Bible thing that you can do, They say that there are over a hundred verses that implies that the battle is not ours, but it's the Lord's. Very important to know that. We sung it this morning. The battle is His. He fights our battles, but we need to stand, and we need to stand in His authority. So, what I was saying is that Jesus, when He sent out the 72 to go and fulfill their first commission, which is the same as our commission of taking the gospel into that world at that time, Anybody know what he said? Luke 10, verse 1 to 3. It says, Therefore go, I am sending you out like lamb, not even sheep, lamb among wolves. Lambs among wolves. Now, I don't know about you, but if we look at the physical and then apply it spiritually, no lamb has ever defeated a wolf as far as I know. So what is Jesus saying? Is he confused now? What are we, lambs or soldiers? No, he is not. He is overemphasizing and stressing the fact that you're going to find opposition, that you will be helpless to defeat or overcome, unless you know who he is and you stand in him. That is the important thing. So, we've got to have a conviction. We've got to have an understanding of the fact that this is a ferocious battle that we're in. We've got to understand that we've got to stand, take our stand as well-trained soldiers. But our confidence is never in ourselves. Our confidence is in Him. And so I want to close by just giving you a picture of this incredible Jesus. The Jesus that John saw in the book of Revelation. When He was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, He says, and He wrote the book, and He had a vision. Now often we look at Revelation and we think, this is what's going to happen one day or something like that. But actually... In Revelation, there are two injunctions for the church. It is written for us as a church, and it says says to the church, one thing is, do not be afraid. You see it many, many, many times. Do not be afraid. We should not be afraid. Though this fierce battle is here and is coming, not be afraid. And secondly, it says, church, would you look to see the risen Christ? The Christ that was so amazing, so awesome, so glorious, that John who was the closest, we say, that he was so familiar with Jesus that he lay his head on his chest, the Bible tells us, that when he saw Jesus, this risen, resurrected, victorious Jesus, present at that moment amongst his people, walking among the lampstands and the churches. So the one has present here now, the unseen reality that is here, even though we can't see him. He was so glorious that John fell as though dead. That's the glorious Christ. John saw the Lord or the ruler of the kings of the world, as described in Romans four. I mean, Revelations four. John saw Jesus, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, as we're saying this morning, entering the throne room of God as a, lame, as a lamb that was slain yet worthy to take the scroll that holds the destination of all creation from God's hand to open the scroll and to read it. That's who John saw. John saw the bridegroom captivated by the beauty of the bride. That was Revelation 5 that describes him as a lamb. John saw the awe-inspiring Jesus rider on the white horse. We heard it this morning mentioned at prayer. Coming in victorious after just having defeated The dragon and and all his forces riding with a sword coming out of his mouth, dipped in blood, two-edged swords, eyes blazing fire, hair like white as snow. Lord of lords and king of kings tattooed on his thighs. That's who John saw. John saw the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the one who is the author, the creator, the architect of all creation, and who holds the destiny of all creation in his hands, as described in Revelation 1 and 21. John saw the source of all light and the source of the river of life flowing from the throne. That's source, Revelation 22. That's the Jesus that John saw. John saw the Jesus that held this re- the reward for his people in his hands, beckoning us to come to himself, thereby ensuring our eternal one- well-being. The confidence that we have that he's holding our reward for us and calling us to himself. That's the Jesus that John saw. And so what the book of Revelation is saying is, Church, if you can see this Jesus, the Jesus that John saw, as a present reality, now, in the midst of you, where you find yourself now, walking amongst his people, being with you, if you can see that Jesus, glorious Jesus, victorious, overcoming, like John saw him, you will not be afraid. That's what it says. Then you will not be afraid. And you will have the power to overcome and be victorious. So, my question to you and me is do we see this Jesus? Do you and I see this Jesus? If not, read the book of Revelations once again through those lenses. Read the Bible. Ask God to reveal Jesus to you that Jesus, because if he is on the throne of your life, if he's your commanding officer, you can engage the fight. So is he your present reality now? Is he the commander of the army that you belong to? And are you engaging the fight, knowing who your commanding officer is? Amen. So tools, if you can come up, I was, I've asked tools to actually do. Prepare this song for us, and maybe he'll introduce it. But I'd love for you to not lose this opportunity or this moment now. And to actually, there are so many aspects of the church that actually is, finds application still that I haven't even touched on. I think, I don't know if I missed now at the beginning where I say there's going to be a peacekeeping. It can be advanced, all these different things, the primary functions of, of an army. And, and for you to actually explore it for yourself. Sit there together as husband and wife or as a family around the table and look at it. Find the scriptural basis for it and let it become part of your life. Let that be for each and every one of us like we are well-trained soldiers understanding the authority that we have. That we carry how we get that authority and what it means and apply it in our lives so that all of us can be victorious overcoming. because that's what Jesus did. He, for none of us to be afraid, for none of us to be, be failing in this commission that he has given us. But we need to know and understand it.